Welcome to Vertical Insights, a podcast series brought to you by CA Ventures, bringing you an in-depth look at the commercial real estate industry through the lens of CA's resident subject matter experts. I'm Robert Maddock. And I'm Megan Nam, And this is Vertical Insights. And for our next guest, we have with us Head of Residential for the Americas, Tony DiBiase. Tony, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here today. I can't believe that we haven't done this episode yet, and uh, we've been wanting to get on your schedule for some time now. So why don't you kick us off by just sharing a little bit about your professional background? I've been in real estate industry since 1991. I'm an old guy. I graduated with a finance degree from the University of Illinois, as many of CA people have. Just seems to have worked out that way. And I was in the commercial side of the business, specifically on the office side of the business, through about 2010 when I started focusing on student housing and specifically outside of the United States. And with that, I came, Tom Scott is someone I've worked with, our chairman. I've worked with him before in the past, back in the early 90s at a company called U.S. Equities Realty, where he was the chief financial officer. And I came and brought to him a deal in South America, and he convinced me that it needed to be a CA deal, and I should help him create CA International. So in July of 2013, that's how I found my way to CA Ventures. That's amazing. You joined CA and you kind of touched on this a little bit. You started our international practice in in Latin America, but now you have a little bit of a different seat. Can you give us a high level overview of what your day-to-day looks like in your platform now? Yes. So now I'm president of CA Residential, which is focused on multifamily development management and ultimately to sell as we're investment managers across the United States and Latin America. I'm still involved quite heavily in Latin America, and that's what I'm doing day by day. The term multifamily residential is 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 broad, so I know CA plays in very specific kind of product types and strategies within that umbrella. Can you give us an overview of what our focus is? Our focus is both boutique projects, which is residential high-rise towers and mid-rise towers, anywhere between 100 and 200 and 250 at the largest uh, number of apartments per building. Or we go into larger buildings where we have towers ranging up to 380 apartments. We've also done some suburban projects, which are low to mid-rise buildings spread across a larger piece of land. All for rent projects, we don't build condominiums or anything like that. Everything we do is a for rent project, and we're in various markets throughout the country and soon Mexico City. Tony, can you maybe dive a little deeper into those markets? Is there a certain area of focus? Your team's based here in Chicago. You're based in Dallas. Where's the team focused on in terms of the CA residential footprint, at least as it relates to the Americas? As it is right now, we're very data-driven, like many of the verticals at CA Ventures. So we look at demographic data, where jobs are going and where young people are moving to. Obviously, our focus is renters. So we're looking for people prior to them starting a family and buying a single-family home. Luckily for us and for the entire industry, that age range has expanded as a result of several factors, primarily because young people today aren't as interested in owning assets as they are in having experiences, which personally I agree with. After living through the last crisis, home ownership isn't all that it's cracked out to be. So with that said, we focus on markets such as Nashville, Phoenix, San Diego, Minneapolis, growth markets, markets that have seen an uptick in people moving there and primarily because of the job market. 
Now, you mentioned some areas that I know are really hot markets, like in Nashville, like in Atlanta. Minneapolis kind of doesn't really fit in there. Is that more so because of you see a particular opportunity or is that a big job growth market? It actually is a job growth market. It's interesting. Minneapolis, and I have to check the data on that, but it might be the second largest market outside of Chicago in terms of job growth. We find it very interesting that between the Twin Cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul, you have a lot of consolidation of banks. You have new office buildings being built there. And many people are moving back to Minneapolis who are from Minneapolis, which is very interesting. You would think once they escape the snow, they'd want to stay away. And we find that that's not the case. You mentioned they're major cities, right? But when I think, when I personally think of major cities, I'm thinking New York, Boston. You obviously have some properties here in the city of Chicago. I don't want to dwell on COVID too much, but there was a lot of conversation around multifamily buildings and the impact that COVID had on it. Can you talk maybe a little bit about what was the COVID experience like for you and your team, particularly from a property management side? And what lessons did you guys learn? Or are you now implementing from that? That's a great question, Rob. Thank you. It, it actually was very impactful on our portfolio. Not only did we see a decrease in occupancy as many young people decided to leave the cities that they were in for their job and return back home to their parents to save money, either because they lost a job or simply because they didn't have to go into an office five days a week. So many people left and moved someplace else. So we saw occupancy drop Probably, I would say up to the double digit mark, up to 10% in our highest growth areas, cities like Chicago, for example. We went from mid 90s to mid 80s. In St. Louis, we went down to the low 80s. In Phoenix, we went down to the low to mid 70s. And unfortunately, it's come back since COVID has started to wane. But what we noticed is we had a lot of work to do in terms of adjustments we made to how we operate a building. So our cleaning specifications almost doubled. We had to spend a a lot of time with communications with residents, especially it's interesting, right? Certain markets took to the whole mask mandate different than others. Phoenix isn't the same as a St. Louis or the same as a Chicago, for example. Atlanta also, it seems to be broken up, as we all know, by political lines and boundaries for whatever that's worth. But we had to spend a lot of time with residents and making sure that everyone felt comfortable. What's interesting is we've had a symposium for lessons learned back in April, and we spoke a lot during that symposium of what we've learned during COVID, what we did wrong, what we did right, and maybe what we overcorrected for, right? Because we didn't know how long things would last. We didn't know how serious it was. And we ended up shutting down a lot of the amenities because we were told to by a lot of government agencies, especially because early on, as you recall, everyone thought that it could be easily transferred via touch. And we found out that that's not really the case, that it's, it's very difficult to, to transpose the disease through touching athletic equipment, for example. And, uh, and now what we're doing is we're wiping it down and we're spraying our gyms daily, multiple times per day. But they were closed for quite a while. And that caused an issue because one of the advantages for tenants to live in a building that we create is that we have a tremendous amount of excellent amenity space and social areas, which is what draws them to multifamily living to begin with. So I would say the lesson learned is that we should be careful on how we operate those areas, but we shouldn't completely close them unless, of course, we are mandated by local government to do so. We are not interested in breaking the law. Great thing to get out there on a podcast. No, that's amazing. And I actually sat in on the, the residential symposium with your team and um, listened to some of the, the stories and, and lessons learned. And I think it's 
this real silver lining here is that our operations teams and, and even development teams for that matter have seen it all at this point. And so whether we turn it up or turn it down at this point with the Delta variant, we've kind of written the book on everything. And so from a development perspective, what were the impacts on your team? From a development impact, we decided to look at how we've designed space and design it so that you have traffic patterns that make sense, that you don't congregate people in an area if you don't have to. Uh, we're now adding things like touchless elevator calls to our buildings. We're eliminating doors where we don't need doors, one less thing to clean, one less touch point, et cetera. So all those things came into consideration, and we sat down with the greater group to go through that, Meg. So that's that's a really good point you make. Not only how we operate buildings, but how do we need to design them going forward? Another example is we're taking a lot of the amenity space and using it as co-working. And we found that that's been a huge draw during COVID is having co-working space where people could go and work from their same apartment building without having to be in their physical apartment all day long. As human beings, we, we need a little break. We can't sit in the same room for 24 hours a day, day on end, and expect to keep our sanity. Absolutely. So you, you talked a little bit about the occupancy and, and leasing impacts from a negative perspective, but have things bounced back since? Where are we today? Yes, they bounced back quite a bit. So today we are 93.5% occupied across our stabilized portfolio with 98% net leased across our stabilized portfolio. And again, that's up from our lowest was 86% across the portfolio. So we went from 86% to 98% in a matter of the last five months. So we're quite happy with that jump. We've seen concessions burn off in most markets. Concessions going from, at one point, they were as high as two to three months rent free in certain cities down to one month free. And in some buildings, we're giving no concessions because we're above 93, 94%. So we don't need to offer concessions to attract the last few tenants. Tony, one of the big themes that we heard coming out of the multifamily space as COVID was getting started was that people were leaving the major cities and they weren't coming back. They were going to the suburbs. As you've seen the big switch in your leasing as well as in your occupancy, has that been from a similar renter pool? Are you seeing new renters come into the market? No, not so far. We're seeing the same renters come back though, but come back fast and, and hard in droves. And again, I think it's the product of age, right? When we're at a certain age in our lives, we want to be together. It's, it's a human need to be social and to be around each other. The suburbs offer a very good benefit, but usually when people have children and they're thinking about education and they want more room for their kids and their dogs to run around. But until the point that they have children, city life is for most of us, quite honestly. So the markets that you were focused on previously, again, these high, these high growth uh, markets, whether it's jobs, um, population, et cetera, that hasn't changed for you. You're still focused on kind of what I get based on what you named, really the smile states and some few outliers throughout the Midwest. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Rob. Exactly. So we look at the smile states and then a couple of outliers, and it's all based on job growth. And it's based on companies that want to live and work and occupy those cities and those states, and they bring the people with them. And it's a quality of life issue. What's interesting is we see a lot of people, and I know a lot of people personally, I imagine both of you do as well, who are making lifestyle decisions, major lifestyle decisions at a much younger age. You know, usually people got into their late 50s, you know, like pre-retirement, like right before they retired to decide to move to an area where they eventually want to live out the rest of their life. Now people are making that decision in their early 30s. 
Because what they're realizing is it's not as important where you work necessarily, especially if you can work from anywhere. So you're going to go to where you need to be for your job. But if you can live in a city that you prefer to live in and work someplace else, a lot of people are taking that chance, making that effort, which is why we're seeing people move to Minneapolis or why we're seeing you know so many people move to Atlanta. For example, not just COVID, but you had a social unrest last year that had a dramatic impact on urban areas as well. Atlanta's come back super strong. Despite cr- crime, despite what we hear in the news, despite all the bad, 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 which is all the news ever wants to sell us, people want to be in urban areas and they prefer that. Well, there's a ton of job growth there and I'm sure part of the peak and occupancy and and leasing activity that you're seeing is a result of employers calling their employees back to work. Exactly. And that's happening uh, next month, actually. We're seeing in many cities, Meg, uh, right after Labor Day, many people are being called to the office. I just had a conversation with a friend last night who's being called back to her office in Chicago starting September 7th. And she's not crazy about it, but I told her it's because she's watching the news and she thinks Chicago's the Wild West. She knows winter's coming. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I think as long as people can you know, rely on their public transportation, they'll be fine. Given the fluctuation that you've seen, obviously we, we had a, a dip and then now we're in a pretty good position in terms of occupancy portfolio wide. What are you hearing and, and seeing from capital partners? I'm sure there were endless questions about what was happening within our portfolio and, and within the market in general. Yes, they were worried at first, I think as everybody was, because we didn't know where the market was. And in some cases, we may still not know where the market is in some particular areas. For example, as you mentioned earlier, people thought urban living might be done for 10 years. We find out that that's not the case at all because it's come back extremely strong. So capital was waiting on the sidelines to decide, do we go into urban areas? Do we go into suburban areas? Do we go into rural areas? Are people going to decide to live out in the mountains and only work via internet? We lived through this in our student housing days, right? Where people said there will be no universities, people can study from home and take online classes. And that's not the case. We've had the technology to do that for a decade now. And the reason it's not the case is because as human beings, we need to be together. As we know, as the three of us know from our work environment, three of us are in the office in Chicago much more than we're not, right? Because we're more productive to be together. And and that's what we're finding. And we're happy about that. So what's happened is the capital pauses when it wants to pause and then reacts as fast as it can once it sees which way the market moves. Since occupancy started to come back strong starting in March, capital immediately ran into these projects. We've had quite a few sales since and closings since March, and they've all been very, very positive. So capital is back. But on that note, Tony, the residential team has had a big six months. Talk us through some of the highlights there. You you guys have had some really exciting things happen. We've had quite a few positive closings happen since March, including we've closed the largest project to date in CA Ventures history, which is in San Diego, which we will be delivering in August 2023. It's a multi-story, high-rise, multifamily building that we're very excited about with a capital partner that we've done many projects with. We've closed a project in Denver. We've closed a project in Fort Collins. We've closed a project in West Sacramento. We've sold three buildings, one for a very good number in Phoenix, Arizona, which we're very happy about. We have a second building delivering this month, actually, in Phoenix, Arizona. And then we hope to start phase three of a three-phase project. The first one we sold, second one we're delivering this month. The third one we hope to start construction before March of next year. Besides that, we've delivered a project in Arlington Heights, Illinois. We've 
delivered a project in Nashville, and we're about to deliver a project in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So it's been quite a year on top of raising the occupancy from the mid 80s to the high 90s. You've been busy, to say the least. We've been busy. No need to brag. (laughs) No, Tony, that's fantastic. And it it definitely sounds like capital's back for you and your team. So it's always great to see new development starts happen. But also, you know, as you mentioned, being an investment management firm, we are looking for the exits. So seeing those exits happen as well is, is certainly a positive. So kudos to you and your team. Just as you kind of think about the future, one thing that we always like to I don't want to say end because we look forward to having you back to hearing more about what's to come with the team. But if you're thinking about CA residential, call in the next four to five years, what is your vision for your team and where do you see your team going? I think we will do more of the same because it's worked very well for us. We're going to continue to do high rise projects in urban areas. I think we have a really interesting strategy on boutique buildings to do these smaller buildings. We found that they have a greater staying power. To the point I made earlier about COVID and losing tenants, we have a boutique building downtown Chicago. That particular building never dropped below 90% occupancy, even in its worst moment, and maintained top of market rents. So we like that strategy. It's not easy, but it's achievable. So that's a strategy we're focusing on. And we also like to add more synergy to what we're doing. So in markets like Atlanta and markets like Denver and markets like San Diego, we'd like to do some outlier projects, possibly some suburban projects. We're watching that market closely and Capital's watching that market closely too. So we'd like to sprinkle a few of those in while sticking to our core business, which is really urban, high rise and boutique building. Before we let you go, Tony, I'd like to dive into the boutique residential strategy a little bit more. So you mentioned it's 150 to maybe 250 units, so a a smaller product than your typical high-rise kind of core infill. But other than that, what are the big differentiators? I would imagine unit type and, and amenities from a development perspective, but operationally, I would imagine there's some pretty big discrepancies in that structure as well. Yes, there is. So a couple of things with boutique buildings. So normally we build larger spaces, right? So an average apartment complex, a high-rise complex, will have roughly 800 to 950 square feet per unit on average. Our boutique buildings will have around 1,000. So it's just slightly bigger per unit. We usually build bigger units as well. It's a higher chunk rent price, which is a total, you know, what the tenant pays all in each month. But operationally speaking, it's a very high touch model. What we find is people really respond to that. Oftentimes our renters are people who are not looking for a bargain. They're not looking for the cheapest rent and the largest concession in the newest building. They like the speed at which they go from the front door to their unit. They like the fact that they're being addressed by name as they walk in and walk out of the building. It's a complete high touch surface in terms of we can help them with dog walking. We can help them with in-unit deliveries of packages, grocery delivery, et cetera. And the tenants seem to know each other and respond to each other better in smaller buildings. Smaller knit community, but also more kind of intensive operations. Are we talking about more of a hospitality type structure for the operations? Is this like a Four Seasons concierge type approach? Exactly. That's what we're trying to accomplish. And people seem to be responding to that. We're, we're high uh, top of the market rents in the buildings that we have that we consider boutique. So yeah, that's a perfect point. Well said. 
that makes perfect sense in terms of the kind of stability that you you saw from an occupancy standpoint over COVID because people were valuing smaller communities, less people. I know I myself bought a home and moved to a, a smaller environment because I live in a high rise that was pretty crowded during COVID days and your mentality changed. So is that something that you're projecting the demand is going to continue to grow in a post-COVID world? Absolutely. We're going to see more of that. And that's why we're looking to build more of that across the United States and specifically in markets where we already know and believe in for the reasons we talked about earlier, demographics and job growth. Stick with what you know. I like it. There you go. So we'll have you back to talk about more boutique residential successes. But in the meantime, thank you so much for joining us, Tony. It was a pleasure to have you. Thanks, John. It's my pleasure. We'll talk again soon.